0: we'll have the text up on the screen behind me in just a little bit we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room little racks beneath the seats if you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that one home. And the reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word, the scriptures, the Bible, whatever you want to call it. We believe that he uses that for his purposes and for his glory, mostly to, to teach us about himself. And so he uses it to convict us of sin and draw us to repentance and give us himself. And we want you to know God. And so the best way to find them is to start reading. And so if you don't have a Bible of your own, take that one, start reading it. I'll call it a win and we'll go buy some more and we'll all have a good day. All right. Job chapter one. Uh, so we shut down a series that we were working on for the whole year uh, called the story of God or, or if you like the more thematic version, the story of God. Right. Um, and uh, we shut it down for the summer to focus on some other things. We had a little mini series. We had a bunch of one offs. Uh, but school's back in session now. Like it was cool outside this morning. Right. It's going to be 81 on Tuesday. But yeah, it, it felt really nice outside. Fall is here. It's time to, to, time to get back into our series for the year. And so uh, uh, we're going to pick that back up today. Uh, and so we're going to have a, a good time with it. Uh, the premise for the series is pretty simple. We believe that the whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible, not just the New Testament, not just the the prophecies towards the end, of the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. We believe the whole Bible is about Jesus. Even stories about like Samson murdering a bunch of people with a donkey's jawbone, and Leah being the third wheel in her sister's storybook romance. We believe that those stories are ultimately about Jesus too. Jesus never is never mentioned in those stories. His name is never uttered in those stories, but he's most assuredly. star of the show and to show our work to, to show how we get there we're taking a slow walk through the lives of the major characters of the old testament and we're asking the question how does their story how does their life teach us about the much more beautiful and much bigger more eternal story of god how does their life teach us about the much more beautiful story of god but here's the deal that's That's admittedly a a pretty big question to answer. At least it feels like one. I don't think it is, but it feels like one. And so to help us get there each week, we've taken up the habit of breaking our big, massive question into four smaller questions, and those four smaller questions are these. How was this person raised up? What made this person a seemingly bad choice? What did God do to redeem them? And then finally, how does their story preach the gospel? I'm of the opinion that if we answer those four questions faithfully, we actually position ourselves in such a way that the big, massive story of God question is rather easy to answer, actually. And so, uh, so uh, you all ready to jump into it this morning? Who's our character for the day? Job. Not, not Job. Job. J-O-B, Job. Let's look at the highlights. An enemy of God? Maybe? A bad theologian? probably a suffering servant definitely let's look at question number one how was job raised up and his story surprisingly starts in job chapter one verse one there was a man in the land of uz whose name was job and that man was blameless and upright one who feared god and turned away from evil Verse 2, there, was, uh, there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. All right, so we learn a few things about Job pretty early on in his story. We learn, for starters, that he is very wealthy and very, very pious. Not only does the the text call him a righteous man in his age, but we actually see the story play out where he is making sacrifices just in case his kids did something evil behind his back. Like, he doesn't just handle his business. He's, he's making sacrifices for his kids just in case they got into something while his back was turned. This is an incredibly pious man. He's an incredibly busy man. He's working his tail off at, at work, at home, in his business, for his family, and definitely religiously. This boy is busy. He's very wealthy, very, very pious. We also know that he's living in the age of the patriarchs in the earliest days of the, the book of Genesis. We, that, the part that we read doesn't mention that explicitly, but we learn that from other places in the text and other things outside of the text coming into the text. All right? And so we know that Job's story, uh, even though it was written much later, that his life actually plays out in the earliest days of the Bible. And Most scholars, or at least a lot of scholars, think that Job's story takes place sometime between the days of Noah and Abraham. Sometime in that time period. And it's a big time period, but it's, it's early on. It's written down much later... Somebody uh, during the time of the, the poetry liter- literature wrote it down for us, but it was an oral tradition handed down generation after generation. And Job's story plays out early on in the Bible. I know that might seem weird that it's in the middle of the Bible for some of y'all, but that's because the Old Testament is grouped categorically all right, by, by genre of, of literature. So you've got all the history books, and then it moves to the, the wisdom and, and poetry books, and Job is written as poetry. And so it's the very first one of the poetry books. You got uh, Job, you have Psalms, Proverbs. What comes next? (laughs) Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. All right, good little church kids. All right. So, you got the history books, you got the wisdom and literature books, you got the major prophets, and you got the minor prophets. The Old Testament is grouped categorically by genre. And so, it's the earliest of the wisdom literature, and so, it's the first one in the wisdom literature. That's how that works, if you didn't know. All right? And so, it may seem weird that Job is in the middle of our Bibles, but at the end of the day, Job's stories happened way, way earlier in the redemptive story of God reconciling all people to himself. Early on. In fact, if you, would, if you were working through a chronological Bible reading plan this year, you would have looked at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, then you would have stopped there and gone immediately to the book of Job and read all that and then come back to Genesis. Job's story happens very early in the story of God. Now, why is that important? One, he doesn't know of a Savior yet. He has no knowledge of a coming Savior. He probably doesn't even have knowledge of a covenant family and Abraham's offspring. So why is that important? Well, Job sees God as someone not to be known and walked with. Not to have a relationship with him, but strictly as a divine someone out there who gives good things to those who do good and curses those who do bad. That's Job's view of God. In Job's mind, if you're blessed, it's because you earned it. And if those blessings are taken away and curses are given instead, you probably earn that too. You earn that too. The theological term for this, uh, theological term for this is retribution theology. That God's hand is moved based on how well you perform. And so what we're talking about here is essentially a version of animism. Where where I do good and, and God blesses me, and if I do bad, God takes that blessing away and gives me curses instead. Now, if you know your Bible well, you know that that's not how God actually does stuff, right? But for our purposes this morning in looking at and understanding the life of Job, we need to lock that down. We need to lock down the idea that that Job has a view of God that those of us who are coming after him generations and and millennia even later see differently. We We also know that his name evokes something important. In Hebrew... Job's name wouldn't be pronounced Job, he'd be pronounced Iyob. Iyob. Well, why is that important? Well, because multiple times throughout this little book, Job calls himself an Oyeb. Oyeb is the Hebrew word for enemy. And anybody who is a native Hebrew speaker during Job's day would have immediately seen that as a play on words. So why is that important? Because Job thinks that God considers him an enemy. Job thinks that God sees him as an enemy. Now, where would he get an idea like that? Well, Job's story keeps going, right? Look at verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord... And Satan came, also came among them. Call a little time out here. Sons of God is not literal sons of God. It's a, it's a term for angels in the Old Testament. Literally anybody who is under the care and authority of God. So he acts as father. They act as sons. That's how that works. So there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Verse 11, But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, then he will curse you to your face. Verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 16, While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So many things to talk about, right? After the introduction of Job, we're given a picture of the divine throne room. God gathers those who are supposed to give a report back to him, and we're told that that Satan slips in uninvited, right? God's like, what are you doing here? Satan gives a little report. I've been going here, and I've been going there. And God brings up Job. It wasn't an argument that came before this. God says, have you considered my servant Job? Right out of the blue. Do you think God knows what's about to happen? If you think the answer is no, we have a different problem to deal with, right? God absolutely knows what's about to happen. In fact, it's all his idea. He is setting the table for all of this to play out. Which means that everything that we're about to see play out in the life of Job is part of something that God is doing behind the scenes, listen, that Job has no knowledge of. Job's not in this room. No one in the, in the story of Job, after this plays out, comes to Job and says, Hey, there was this meeting that happened. Job has no clue. Satan argues that it's, well, it's because God's protecting him and blessing him. That's why Job praises you. And so God tells him to take it all away. But in case you're new to the story, it's important to see a couple of things about this, this little interaction that we need to pay attention to. One, Satan needs that permission. None of this happens without that permission. And two, God fences Satan in still. What does he say? Take his stuff, but don't touch him. So what happens? Well, Satan goes to work, and he is very, very good at his job very good at his job. Job is doing his thing one day and the servant runs up to him and says, hey, 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 a, a, a warring tribe took all the ox and donkeys and they killed all your servants. I'm, a, I'm the only one that's left. And the Bible literally says before he's finished talking, another guy runs up to him and says, what? Fire falls out of the sky and killed all the sheep. And before that guy's done talking, the Chaldeans, the, the Babylonians, were given a report that they stole all the camels. As if the day wasn't bad enough, another guy, the fourth guy, rushes up and tells him that his kids were all killed in a tragic accident. That if we're paying any attention at all to the story, definitely is no accident. Anybody in here think that they can imagine a more gut-wrenching 45 seconds? Right? But what does verse 22 say? In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Verse 20 actually says that he fell down and worshipped him. Listen, I'll be honest with you. I I don't know how he did it. Anybody else? I I, I don't know if that would be my knee-jerk response. I want it to be, but I don't know if that's naturally in me. So in chapter 2, Satan again appears before God and argues, well, well, if God lets him attack his health, then Job will finally turn. And so Satan gives him what the Bible calls loathsome loathsome sores. That's a hard word for me to say. Loathsome sores. I'm not exactly sure what that is, but it doesn't sound fun. gives him loathsome sores all over his body. And in chapter 2, verse 8, we're told... In chapter two, verse eight, we're told that Job just sits there in the ash pile all day, scraping himself with a broken piece of pottery to find relief, as his wife nags him and says, "Just go ahead and curse God and die." How's your day going? Like I don't want to, I don't want to ever, ever. make light of people's struggles because they, they are real and they hurt I don't want to ever go down that path, listen, maybe you've had a bad week, maybe you've had a bad couple of years is there anybody in this room that wants to trade the day with Job anybody want to try to go shot for shot with Job this morning hold on boy I can do you one better let me tell you about my day craziest part is found in verse 10 it says all in all this Job did not sin with his lips even as his wife is telling him to curse God and die Job refuses to do that he refuses to curse it's so a good job Job of boy but now it's time for scene two it's also time to ask our next question for the day and so what is that what made Job a seemingly bad choice? What made Job a seemingly bad choice to be a part of God's great redemption story, right? Well, in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, Job's three friends show up. And things go really, really well for a while. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And if you're wondering, the answer is yes. You do need to name your next kid Zophar. Bring it back, Somebody. But Job's three friends all show up and they just sit quietly with him for a while. They just sit there for a whole week, the Bible says, seven days. And those of you who have walked through grief or maybe you've walked other people through grief, you you know by experience that that is maybe the best thing that you can do in that moment. Don't try to fix it. Don't try to explain it away. Just be present. And that's exactly what Job's friends, three friends, do at first. And then after sitting quietly for a week, Job is ready to talk, and he uses that opportunity to lament ever being born. We don't have time to read all of it, but let me just give you some highlights from chapter 3. In Verse 1, it says, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Skip down to verse 9. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light. But... But let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Verse 11, why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Verse 16, or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child? Verse 23, why, why is light given to man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Verse 26, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Any good counselor is going to tell you that letting people vent just a little bit in these kind of moments is usually a good thing. Don't worry about the specific words. Just, just, just let them get some of it out because reason is not exactly their highest priority at the moment. The, the, problem though, the problem, though, is that Job's lament strays into outright accusing God of wrongdoing for allowing him to be born. Anybody think that's a wise idea? And while Job starts out wading through this tragedy without sin, he doesn't end there. He doesn't end there. Somewhere in the time between the tragedy happening and the moment where he's finally willing to talk about it, he he has allowed this kernel of bitterness to fester into something much bigger than bitterness. Turns into full-blown accusation towards God. Not wise at all, but the problem actually gets worse because Job's friends hear what he's saying, and they lay into him. They've been sitting there quiet for a week, just being present with their buddy as he walks through this grief. But as soon as Job opens his mouth, he says something incorrect, and they launch into attacking that. And the next 28 chapters of the book of Job are nothing but Job and his friends arguing back and forth over whether or not Job deserves to be sitting in this mess right now. Job's three friends take up the mantle of trying to defend God's honor. And they do that by accusing Job of wrongdoing. By accusing Job of sin. And there's two absolutely gigantic problems With the idea that these morons are going to try to defend God's honor. One, God doesn't need to be defended. Especially not by the likes of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. God's not going to be overwhelmed by Job's questions of him. He doesn't need their help, he's got it. But the second massive problem with this whole idea is the retribution theology they carry Because their retribution theology will, by default, misrepresent who God is. Completely misrepresent him. Remember, they believe that all good things come as a reward for Job doing good things. And they believe that all curses come as a punishment for Job doing bad things. And their friend is currently sitting in an ash heap right now, scraping himself with shards of pottery. What does their worldview require them to think has happened? That Job's got some heinous sin under the surface. Forget about what we see in front of our eyes. Job must have some heinous sin he's not telling us about. So they launch into it. In their minds, it doesn't matter what they see. Job's not telling us something. And they want to be good friends and all, but they are confident that Job has earned his place in the ash heap at the moment. So noted, Job's friends are all jerks about this. They like nuance, they like grace, while their friend is hurting. Okay, but why does that make Job a bad choice? Because Job carries the same retribution theology they do. He carries the same retribution theology they do. And so his side of the next 28 chapters of argument is, is him not just claiming to be innocent of heinous sin that they're accusing him of, But Job outright accusing God for getting it wrong somehow. Of God punishing him and treating him unfairly. Over and over and over again, he essentially says, I'm completely innocent, so obviously God is the one who messed up somehow. I'm not guilty of that heinous sin. God's got it wrong. Multiple times he says something to the tune of, well, if I could just get a chance to stand before him and plead my case, he'd see things my way. That's most clearly seen in chapter 23, verse 1. Join me there. Job chapter 23. Job, speaking to one of his friends, says this about God. Then Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, talking about God, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There, an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. I go backwards, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Job begins this story by abstaining from sin. But hear me, church, that is not where he is by the middle of the story. Not only does he accuse God of getting it wrong, he says, I can't even find him so I can plead my case to him. Where are you at, God? I go this way, you're not there. I go that way, you're not there. Where are you? Show yourself to me so I can plead my cause and you can see things my way. His friends are morons who are making the problem worse, but Job himself is guilty of sin. So much so that in chapter 32, chapter 32 begins with Job's friends giving up trying to argue because, quote, they saw that Job was righteous in his own eyes. Job is a man who desperately needs to be redeemed, right? Desperately needs to be redeemed. But as we've learned over and over and over and over and over again throughout the course of this series, that's exactly the kind of story that God's writing, isn't it? that brings up the next question how does God redeem Job how does God redeem Job firstly through the intervention of a guy named Elihu chapters 32 through 37 of Job uh, a new character shows up named Elihu he's been sitting back watching all this play out and he's kept his mouth shut until now but he can't take it anymore so he steps onto the scene right and so he rebukes Job and his friends. He, he sets them up and he tears them down. Right? He rebukes both Job and his friends. He, he gives them a much bigger picture of God and his justice than any one of them ever bothered to actually think through. He talks about a far bigger God and a far more holy God than we can begin to imagine. He paints a picture of God's justice that is far more nuanced and far more eternal than we can even begin to wrap our heads around. He talks to Job about how Job doesn't need to be guilty of heinous sin because at the end of the day, he is created in the face of a creator. Elihu sets them all straight and he dresses them down. He's not the only person who shows up. Because the moment that Elihu is finished talking in chapter 37, God shows up in chapter 38. And he's got a few words for Job as well. Super fun words. You want to see some of them? Chapter 38, verse 4. Uh, actually, let's start in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And the next four chapters are nothing but God asking these kind of questions to Job. The kind of questions that if Job is smart, he's just going to keep his mouth shut. You ever had a conversation like that? No, me neither. Never. Never. In chapter 40, halfway through this little conversation, God stops and demands an answer from Job, and Job is smart enough to refuse. And so God just launches into him again. Verse 6, then the Lord, chapter 40, verse 6, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, verse 9, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity, clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Think Job's capable of doing that? God tears into him. I mean, that's the best thing I could use to describe it. God tears into him. And I'm sure for some of you that may be a completely upside down picture of who you think God is. I don't think God did that. You're probably asking right now, how in the world does this this tongue-lashing redeem Job? How in the world does God talking to him this way get Job to where God wants Job to be? Remember when all Job wanted to do was have an audience before God so he could tell God just how wrong God was? Job gets his audience, and it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. What's the end result? The end result is found after God is done speaking in chapter 42. Verse 1 says this, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's talking about himself. Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job only ever had an argument with God when he believed that he and God were on the same level. Now, he would never say that out loud. He was far too pious to utter such things. But the fact that Job thought that he could stand before God and plead his case and God would see it his way and go, Oh, you're right, I never thought of that. Tells you what he actually believed in his heart. He used vaulted language to, to show the buffer between him and God, but he didn't actually believe it. the moment god gave him an idea of who god really is there was nothing left to argue about nothing left there's nothing left to discuss there's no points to to plead his cause about job is infinitely and eternally out of his depth and all sense of what was fair and what wasn't went right out the window when Job finally understood just how small he was in the face of the eternal king of the cosmos. God humbled him. God revealed a piece of himself, a portion of his glory, and it produced exactly what it always produces, repentance. Repentance. To see God for who he is is to be undone. But God humbling Job is not the end of Job's story because after Job repents, the story closes out with God accepting his repentance and blessing him even beyond what he had lost. God gives him back, multiplied what he has lost. He even gets seven sons and three daughters again. Oh, happy little ending. I'm glad Job's all worked it out. Worked it out. But we still have another question to answer this morning, don't we? Namely, how is the gospel preached through the life and story of Job? How in the world does Job's story preach the gospel? Great suffering and being restored and a little bit of bad theology. Like how in the world does Job's story preach the gospel? And for starters, by Job longing for and never finding what he calls an arbiter a mediator to stand between God and himself and bring peace. He desperately wants an arbiter. In chapter 9, verse 33, he says, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. There's nobody to to be the go-between between between God and man. Uh, He can't find that guy. And sadly, no one corrects Job in that moment and says, hey, I know a guy. Because at this point in the story, this point in redemptive history there is no arbiter yet there is no mediator there's no one to stand in the gap between god and man as a mediator and bring peace In chapter 25, one of Job's friends asks the question that that a lot of theologians point to as the question above all questions in the Old Testament. He says this, how then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? And the answer at this point in the story is that he can't. He can't be pure in God's eyes. He cannot stand before God as right. The answer is he can't. Man cannot bridge that gap on his own. God is too big, we are too small. He is too holy, we are too sinful. To stand before God on our own without a mediator is to stand before him exactly the same way that Job had to. It didn't go well for Job, a man who was righteous in his generation. How do you think you're going to fare? Less awesome. Thanks be to God, that is not the end of the story because we do have an arbiter we do have an arbiter we have a mediator we do have someone with a capital s who can lay his hands on us both and bring us to himself in peace his name is jesus he is the one who carries the title of being fully god and fully man, the one who can stand sinless before God on our behalf and plead our cause for us. We have an arbiter, a perfect one. Paid the debt for our sin on the cross so that he could bring us to himself in peace. That's not the only way that Job's story preaches the gospel. Because while he may not have seen the great mediator with his own eyes, it doesn't mean that he didn't know part of his story in fact he got to live some of it some of it out because the second way that job's story preaches the gospel is by being a shadow of a jesus to come job plays the role of a suffering servant a suffering servant he suffers alone under the weight and the wrath of a divine plan he cries out to god asking why he has been forsaken he doesn't get an answer in that moment sound familiar if we take the next step and answer the question, well, why did God give us this story? Well, then we also see that Job suffered for the benefit of others. We get to see God's glory and his presence in the midst of our suffering because the, Job, the story of Job is passed down to us. And so as everything is falling apart, and we're asking the question, God, where are you? Either Job's story is true in that moment and forever true in that moment, or it ain't. Is he there? Is he sovereign over all in spite of the fact that I can't make sense of things right now? If the answer is yes, it is always and forever yes. If the answer is no, we're in a lot of trouble. But the answer is yes. We get to see God's glory and his presence, his control and sovereign rulership, lordship over all things in spite of the mess that we are in right now. Because Job's story has been handed down to us. The story is passed down to us so we can understand who our God is even in the midst of our suffering. So we put in the work this morning. We positioned ourselves with our four small questions to answer our much bigger question, right? How does Job's story preach, tell, proclaim, celebrate the much larger much more eternal much more beautiful much more fulfilling story of god over and over again we we learned that god raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come And so today we learn that god raised up job to be a shadow of a far more perfect job to come in jesus god raised up a pretty righteous suffering servant to be a shadow of a perfectly righteous suffering servant a servant who would suffer not because of his own sin, but for the sins of many. This is the story of God. The story of God is no small deal. In fact, it is easily the greatest action of adventure drama the world will ever know. He is, it is in process from the beginning of creation to the very end of this world. He is redeeming and saving for one solitary reason. And it's that the entire creation will forever see just how good and just how glorious he is. What do we do with God's word this morning? What do we do with it? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God today, right? You do that by pressing into his word. Start with the story of Job. You probably have never really thought through this, but literally, Job has been given to us so that we may know God. Press in there. But we can take another step into this. Maybe Joe's story sounds an awful lot like yours, at least sometimes. You've, got, you've gotten your tail whipped the last whatever bit of time. Maybe you've been beaten up by life lately, and you're inclined to think that God got something wrong somewhere. Today's a good day to repent of that sin. I love you. God did not get anything wrong. He is moving and working long before you walked into the picture and he will be moving and working long after you're out of it. God did not get something wrong, but today is a good day to repent of that sin and lean into his bigness and lean into his control over the infinite list of things that you know nothing about. Nothing, me neither. Don't wait until you have to have a little one-on-one conversation with him to sort that out. It won't end well. I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, we'll have a couple of folks up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you well this morning. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. You can respond to God's word this morning too, and you do that by meeting the one that this story is all about. You do that by repenting of sin and coming to him alone as Lord. Jesus paid the debt that you and I owe for our sin on the cross. He reconciles us to Himself for all those who who trust Him and follow Him, call Him Lord, order their lives around who He is and what He calls us to. He he gives us Himself. And so if that's you today, if today's the day that you want to take that step and and repent of sin and and walk with Jesus, man, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and and we'll be down here. Listen, I'll be down here too. You come talk to me. I want to walk you through that. Today's a good day for all of us to respond to God's word this morning. He is big. He is eternal. He is all powerful. He is good. He loves you with a great love. And even when things don't make sense, he is still all those things. So let's pray and respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for being a God who's over all and through all and in all. Thank you for being a God who is big enough to to not be daunted by our massive questions of you. But God, my heart is inclined at times to believe that we are on the same level. And it's only ever because I don't see you correctly in that moment. My heart is inclined to believe that, that, that the deal went sour and you got something wrong because I kept up my end. But I, I don't see you correctly and I don't really see myself correctly in those moments either. You love with a great love, and you love me in spite of me. You make yourself known to me in spite of me. Because I am created in the face of a creator. God, would you make yourself known to us? In doing so, draw us to repentance. Humble us before you. It'll be for our good. God, would you bring people to saving faith today? For those who who don't know you, would you make yourself known to them? Make them deal with you today. God, use this time for your glory. Make your name famous. In your name we pray. Amen.
1: Let's stand and sing. Quiet. Oh, God, you in. in the shadow oh, God. Since birth, through all my life, in my searching.